Welcome to Do Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Imbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and host, Alexa Tullet. Alexa, how are you? I'm doing well, Yoel. How are you? I'm good. Does this feel like deja vu to you? Yeah, there's something that's like feels so um, like familiar about this experience right now. Oddly familiar. I'm referring, of course, to our guest, Spencer Greenberg, who I learned about because you, Alexa, were on his podcast. I listened to that episode. I really enjoyed it. I then kind of mangled it in the description that I gave. Uh, and Spencer very nicely DM'd me to say, you know, hey, uh, you really did not describe that well, except in much nicer words. And then we started chatting and we're like, oh, it would be really fun, actually, for him to come on our show and talk about some stuff. So that's what we're going to do. Spencer, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I, honestly, it's kind of like deja vu for me because I've heard the two of you give the intro so many times. So being on the podcast is, is rather odd. Although, to be honest, usually I listen at like two and a half speeds, so you sound kind of slow right now. <laughs> I feel like this is a change that's happened since I replaced Mickey. Now people are like, okay, let's go. Like, Let's speed this up. <laughs> you know, I feel like, man, if I could be fast forwarded in real life, just to like really just... Uh, I, I feel like it would be great for my audience. And I'm sure my students are like, oh God, can we can we, can we skip forward on this guy a little bit? <laughs> uh, so let me tell you a little bit about Spencer. Uh, Spencer uh, has a PhD in applied math from NYU. Uh, he's the founder and CEO of uh, what I would call, I guess, a startup incubator called Sparkwave. Um, and he's also the host of a clear th the Clearer Thinking podcast, which is a show about psychology of society and behavior change. So Spencer, we ask all of our guests, some version of this question. Um, but I think it especially applies to you. You know, your background um, is in math, in tech, not necessarily in behavioral science. It's not obvious that somebody with your background would be interested uh, in, oh, fuck me. We forgot to talk about drinks. Yeah, okay. I just had that thought. I was oh, like, beer shit. time, you all. Okay. I was wondering when that okay. was going to come up. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 no. It's supposed to come before I start asking you questions. <laughs> Shit. All right. We're going to keep all this in. What the hell? Um, <laughs> let's talk about what we're drinking. Alexa? Um, I have a repeat beer um, on theme with uh, disappointing our, our guests with our drinking. Um, it's Orbital Cloud um, by Common Bond Brewers, and it's a hazy IPA. Nice. How was that last time? It's really good. Yeah. There's a reason I'm drinking it again. I'm not drinking the cake beer again. <laughs> Never again with the cake beer. <laughs> yep. Uh, Spencer, what have you got? All right. So I was hoping you would skip this part because you might just throw me off the podcast immediately. I actually don't like the taste of alcohol, and I also don't like feeling buzzed. So I'm like the worst possible person to drink with. I actually occasionally I'll drink wine when it's served to me uh, served to me at dinner. And I have a numerical rating scale for wine that goes from negative 10 to zero. So the best wine can be as neutral, is what you're saying. Yeah, for, for me, is, for me. Is zero the same as water? Yeah, zero is like water, basically. So um, so with that in mind, I was like, well, how do I like skirt by technically drink alcohol, but not have to actually drink alcohol? So what I did is I found a kombucha that is technically alcoholic. Nice. And it's also called Chardonnay. So it's uh, I feel like it's on, on theme. Wow. Wow. I mean, we we have had some disappointing guests, but I feel like you are, you know, you're maxing it out. That is, that is impressive. I'm impressed. I uh, have a, a whiskey, actually. It's, it's cold here. It just started snowing yesterday, and it just feels really wintry. And I didn't want to drink beer. I felt like I wanted to drink bourbon instead. Uh, so that is what I have. It's in this fancy wine glass. Is it fancier to drink bourbon out of a wine glass? You kind of look like a noob. 
I, I do look like a noob. I don't have whiskey glasses here. <laughs> How is that even, possible? I, I, it's a long story. We're not going to get into it. There's no whiskey right. glasses. There's only these wine glasses. Anyway, cheers. Everyone. Cheers. Cheers. Mm. Oh, that's so good. How's the kombucha? It's actually delicious. Yeah, it's called, Chard- it's called Chardonnay. That's the name of the kombucha. It's made by classic GT's Classic Kombucha. And yeah, it's delicious. Really good. Kind of like nutmeggy flavor. Wow, that is a, <laughs> also That's not weird. what I would expect as a description of a kombucha. <laughs> There's just a lot of zigs and zags here. In this yeah, story. seriously. This yeah. is like a pumpkin pie flavored kombucha. You never know what's going to come up. Um, okay, so we were, I was in the middle of asking a question when I realized that uh, we had forgotten to do drinks. So basically, the question is Spencer, your background is not in psychology. How did you get interested in behavioral science? Uh, Yeah, it's a really good question. So I studied applied math, computer science, machine learning. Those are my kind of fields. But I've always really wanted to figure out how do you use technology to improve people's lives? And that's really how I got interested in psychology is just seeing tremendous opportunity to make people's lives better. And so after I finished my PhD, I was really thinking about, well, what do I want to devote the rest of my life to? And yeah, psychology is what I picked. I decided I want to bring my math, machine learning, computer science focus to psychology in particular. And I just think there are so many critical questions that it can help answer. Like, how do we be happy? How do we reduce mental health problems? How do we make better decisions? Uh, how do we reduce cognitive biases and have better relationships? I mean, these are just like the big questions of human nature that have been discussed forever. And I think we actually have a chance of helping to answer them. So I'm really excited about that. So how did you actually go about educating yourself about this stuff? Do you like read a bunch of books? Did you turn to the research literature? Did you ask people to give you reading lists? Like where do you even start? Yeah, you know, after going through a PhD, I just, I feel like I had learned how to teach myself things. So yeah, I read, you know, a whole bunch of academic papers every week, uh, textbooks, you know, regular, you know, nonfiction books, et cetera. Um, and then started running my own studies. At this point, I've probably run hundred, been involved in running hundred different studies on many different topics, from overconfidence and cognitive biases and rationality, decision making, mental health, um, also some things related to happiness, and yeah, you know, many many different topics at this point. I so I didn't know that, and I I want to stay on that for a, a minute. Um, what are you doing with the data? Yeah, so let me step back and tell you a little bit about SparkWave, the organization I founded. So we basically do four things as an organization, and they all kind of connect to psychology in different ways. The first is we build applied psychology products. So for example, we have an app called Mindies to try to help people who are suffering from anxiety. Um, we also made the website clearerthinking.org, uh, the same name as my podcast, Clearer Thinking. And what we do there is we actually have educational modules covering about 60 different topics that you wouldn't normally learn in school, but that we think are really valuable for people to know about. So whether it's something about cognitive biases, helping you try to be less biased in your life or help you make better decisions or help you form new habits. So that's kind of our, that's like part one, our applied psychology work. Then uh, part two is we run our own research and we do research for mainly two purposes. One is to inform our product development to try to help us build better products to help people. And two, to release the information to the world to help people learn about psychology. So for example, we have a newsletter with 180,000 people on it, and we'll release our results for our research there. We used to try to publish our papers, but now we just, we're like, ah, okay, we could go spend 
you know, a really long time writing this stuff for publication, or we could put it on our blog and send it to 180,000 people. It's like, so now we've actually, so now when we want to uh, publish stuff, we were more like working with academics um, and kind of doing partnerships around it rather than trying to write up the research ourselves. Um, so that's, that's the research component. Um, the third piece is building technology for doing psychological research. So for example, we built a new platform for recruiting people for studies called Positly.com. Uh, we built a new platform for for actually building behavioral interventions and in studies uh, called Guided Track, and uh, we use this for our own research. So we we basically for the last few years have been using our own tech to rapidly develop studies and interventions. And then the last and final piece, I know this is a lot, but the last and final piece is we do meta science, and this is something we're getting into more, trying to help improve the state of psychological science in general. So is it like you? typically work with academics or you have behavioral scientists on staff who are helping you design and run these studies? How does that work? Yeah, it's a mix. You know, some of our team members um, have an academic background. Um, some, of, some of the people we collaborate are academics. You know, sometimes we've, we've co-published with academics before. Um, and sometimes it's just um, our own team members where we're using our own technology to run the studies. Um, so for example, right now, um, we have a big study we're running on cognitive ability, where in this study, we're attempting to replicate 40 claims in the academic uh, intelligence literature simultaneously in one giant study. And this was just our own idea we cooked up to say, well, uh, what, what is actually true about intelligence? Like, how do we know it's true? Let's like design a study. We implemented 61 different intelligence tasks. We've had a sample size of over 2,000 people. And uh, so that's an example of the kind of work that we do. Can you give me also an example of like a way that you think you're you're trying to use technology to make people's lives better? So like a, a product that you've developed or a, I guess like a strategy that you teach people or something like that? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, just to the probably the best example is our work on our website, clearything.org. So we have a tool that's that's called um, it's called Daily Ritual and helps you form a new habit. So basically what we did is we first ran a pilot study where we implemented 20 different methods of habit formation, many of them from the academic literature, some of them our own ideas. We ran a pilot study where we actually randomized which of the techniques people got. We tracked them over a month to see if they stuck with their habit. Then those, the techniques, based looking at which techniques people were randomized into, we could see which ones seemed to be more associated with success or habit. So then we took the five best techniques from that. We implemented them in this tool. You can use it for free on our website. It's called Daily Ritual. Anyone can use it to form a new positive daily habit. And then we actually got a grant to run a randomized control trial on that tool, which we just completed. So we actually studied that tool and showed that uh, people who use the tool had a higher rate of success their habits than those that didn't. And and how do you get people to make habits? You mean, what does the tool actually do? Yeah. Like, what are the best strategies? Yeah, so the strategies it implements, um, so it implements five. I'll see if I can remember off the top of my head. Um, one of them we call habit reflection. And the basic idea is you think about a habit you've succeeded at in the past, and you write down what you did with that habit that worked well for you. Then mm -hmm. you take a moment to write about how you can apply what you learned from that prior habit and what worked there to this new habit. So that's one of the five techniques. Um, a second of the five techniques is called home reminders. You simply write a reminder, super simple and stupid, but you simply write a reminder yourself to do the habit and then you place it somewhere where you will cannot, you cannot miss it, right? Um, mm -hmm. And the reason we end up stacking five techniques together, those are two of the five, is because we're trying to produce a real effect size, right? We will actually want something that forms new habits. Like, and so, you know, having more techniques in there if you, rather than fewer gives us a greater ability to achieve our goal. 
so like in a very practical way, if you're, you know, you have 10, 20 possible interventions that come from the literature, are you paying attention to, well, how solid does the evidence seem for them? Are you reading these papers with an eye towards, does it seem like these findings are replicable versus not? Or are you kind of like, well, I think of those as interesting ideas and then we'll test them and see what comes out and what doesn't. Exactly. The latter. Yeah, they're interesting. So I can use the academic literature as a source of ideas, and then we can run our own studies to see if it holds up. And so it's exactly what we did with our habit research. We tested roughly 20 techniques, and some that we thought were going to hold up from the academic literature just didn't. Like, we were kind of shocked because <laughs> they're famous and everyone believes that they hold up. So we're like, oh, okay. Well, you know, it doesn't mean we can generalize. It doesn't mean the technique never works. But like in our study, for our particular purpose, it didn't hold up. So uh, yeah, we found five. that We found some evidence that they worked, but also it was not fully convincing because we tested 20 things. You know, there's always a, ch- a lot of chance of false positives. So fortunately, we were able to get the funding to do a follow-up rep- uh, um, randomized control trial on the tool itself, which is a much cleaner confirmatory test. So, uh, yeah, but that's kind of our, our general approach. We often source ideas from that kind of literature, but then we often check them ourselves. Can you um, talk a little bit about how, so um, when academics are testing their like intervention for habit formation, um, they have like a certain set of incentives, right? Um, when they're analyzing the results in order to get their paper published. Um, do you feel like in your role as somebody who is trying to develop these strategies for the public, that you have different incentives. So for instance, can you be like more open to the possibility that none of the interventions work or, you know, the intervention that you liked didn't work or something like that? Like, do you think that it changes the, yeah, the incentives that drive your, your work? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that there will always be bad incentives, but they're bad incentives to different degrees and in different ways. Mm-hmm. So if, you know, if all the work we did and everything failed, like obviously that would be just personally really upsetting, right? So there, right. you know, it's like on a psychological level, the incentive to have some of what I do work. Um, on the other hand, we have irons in many fires. We try a lot of different things and we don't need them all to work, which is actually really great and really freeing psychologically. Because like if our habit research had bombed, like, okay, we just don't have a habit tool, but we have a whole bunch of other tools that we can release to the public. So that's okay. And so when we tested those 20 um, techniques, in, in our original habit research, like it was fine if some of them failed, like that's totally fine. Um, and I think that this is one really nice thing that we have afforded to us by being sort of an independent organization is that we can have a different, totally different set of incentives, right? We don't have to publish our work. In fact, we've kind of increasingly, as I mentioned before, leaned towards saying, well, we're going to publish, we might as well collaborate with academics when we want to publish and not bother to publish ourselves separately. Yeah. So do you think that this perspective um this informs your ideas about what you called inspired science versus open science. So this is something that you and Alexa talked about at length. We're going to drop in uh, a link to the show notes to that episode in the show notes to that episode so people can find it if they want. Um, but just briefly, uh, can you tell people you know, how you see this distinction and then maybe whether you know the kind of work that you're doing sort of led you in that direction? Yeah, so I think a lot about the motivators people have. And I think when it comes to science, the motivation you have moment to moment as you're doing your research is really critical to how the research turns out. My view is that 
to do science, you are making hundreds of decisions that are hidden from the final product, right? Everything from like, how did you word that item on your questionnaire to what order did you put them in to which, you know, questions did you put there in the first place and so on. And so what I think about is like, okay, what are the motivations driving all of those little micro choices? And I think the research is going to be really affected by that. And so I, the way I think about this is that these three big motivations for doing science in in reality, real scientists have a mix of them. You know, some more than uh, have more one than another, but most people have a mix of all three. But I'll, but just to kind of cleanly separate them from the point of view of the conversation, I'll talk to them about them as three distinct motivations. Um, so the first one is what you could think of as a career motivation. This would be like an occupational scientist, and the the credo of this is publish or perish. And the really extreme quintessential example would be. Imagine you've had a lifelong dream of being an academic, but you have to get four publications in top journals in the next two years in order to achieve this dream, right? And it's like, think about the incentive that creates. Think about how that affects your moment-to-moment decision-making when you're designing your studies and how much pressure there will be to find something that looks interesting that you can publish, right? Then there's motivation two, which is robustness. Uh, You could think of this as the classic open scientist, And I just want to say, for the record, I'm a huge fan of open science. I think open science is great. I think we need more than open science, though, and which I'm going to talk about in a moment. But so so motivation two is you really want to make your research robust. Um, You want to prove to others that your work is valid. Your guiding credo is that your results should be unimpeachable. So someone who doesn't trust you at all, who like hates your guts and thinks you're an idiot and and thinks you're a liar, should still be able to trust your result when they see it because you followed all the good practices, right? and uh, sort of a quintessential example of this would be imagine that you're about to drop a bombshell that claims that some really famous result doesn't actually hold up. You want to be able to show that it's so robust that you know you're going to get critiqued by a lot of people and you want to be able to show you did everything right. And this leads to the, the third motivation, which is truth, which I give the name the inspired scientist. And the guiding credo here are that results should be true and important. And your focus is really trying to figure out what's actually true about reality. And this is subtly different than the robustness motivation, because the robustness motivation is about doing unimpeachable work that, that like you could show to someone and they will believe it, whereas this motivation is about finding true things. It's not about proving something to someone else. A kind of quintessential example of this would be, imagine you have a lifelong obsession with discovering how some phenomenon works, right? So you just really want to know what's true. Or an even more extreme example would be, your child is going to die of a rare disease in a couple of years if you don't figure out how the disease actually works. And so you're just, it's all about figuring out the truth on that thing. None of it is about proving it to others, except insofar as proving it to others helps you actually figure out the truth. Do you see the the third scientist you described as somebody who has robustness as a goal and then on top of that an additional interest in like the I guess the practical importance of a finding so I can imagine a scientist whose only concern is robustness who is finding out stuff with a lot of certainty that's pretty boring um and then I can imagine like layering on top of that like an interest in the like relevance of somebody's findings or the applicability of those findings to the real world or the, their potential impact um, and having that sort of like reach this threshold of the inspired scientist or something like that. What I can't imagine is an inspired scientist that doesn't ex- put extremely high value on robustness. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think you have to put a high value on robustness as an inspired scientist, but 
I do think that there are ways that these two will peel apart. Whether if you're seeking truth, I think you'll sometimes make very different decisions than if you're seeking robustness. So if so, uh, inspired scientists will use robustness as a means to truth, but they're not like valuing right. it in, in itself, right? As an end in itself. So let let me give you an example. Let's say that you didn't realize that one of your variables was going to have outliers, but then when you're going and looking at them, you discover that in fact there are really bad outliers there of a type that you did you didn't expect, right? Now, if you're really seeking truth, I think what you're going to do is you're going to look at those outliers very carefully and you're going to say which of the what way of handling these, whether it's removing them or not removing them or clipping them or whatever, is actually going to give me the truest estimate of this phenomenon. Whereas mm-hmm. if you're seeking robustness, you might be worried that you're going to get critiqued if you change because in your pre-registration, you didn't say you were going to remove outliers. And you might be worried, oh, but if I change it, then the people are going to, can now have a line of attack against me saying that I didn't do what I pre-registered. So that's just one example. But I could, I could give a bunch of examples where I think they pull apart. I would disagree with that. Like, I think that if you were seeking robustness in that case, you would do exactly what you described um, the person who's seeking truth would do. Um, things like pre-registration and whether we stick to it or not, like those are imperfect but useful tools to get at robustness. But if you really want a finding that's going to replicate, if you want something that's going to be robust, then you should be like very invested in like truly understanding why those outliers are there and what they mean. I think you're using the word robustness just very slightly differently than I am. I, I It's an imperfect word here because it's just like a one-word summary, but I'm using it to mean proving to others that your results are are solid. But I guess what I'm assuming is that like your if if somebody is going to be skeptical of your claim um in a misguided sense, then that doesn't undermine the robustness of what you're saying. But it sounds like you're saying, oh, if if somebody wrongly questions your findings, then that somehow means that they're not very robust. Right. Well what's more convincing in a paper to say well, we deviated from our pre-registration plan because we thought these outliers actually should be handled this other way. Or saying we stuck to our pre-registration plan, right? Like the second, well, I think that the yeah. former is. Oh, really? Because I think the I think the former comes off as significantly less credible because, like, well, but you're deviating from your plan. How do we know you did it for the right reasons? How do we know you didn't just just re- try removing the outliers and see if it improves your p-value and then put them back in? Yeah, I think it's funny that that we have these different intuitions because I my intuition is a little more like Alexa's. So I think it comes up actually quite a bit that the pre-registration says something that then in the end doesn't make sense to do. So it could be this outlier thing. It could be that it just specifies an analysis that after the researchers look into it more isn't the best one. So what I would prefer people do and what I would find the most convincing is if they say, we pre-registered X, we now think that's wrong. Maybe give the results doing it that way, just so people know how that looks. Mm -hmm. And then say, and here's why we think it should be done Y way, and we're going to report that as well. Now, I'm sure there are some people out there who would say like, oh, that's deviating, that's terrible, you know, reject the paper. Uh But I think most people who have thought about pre-registration a while, they think of it as, I, I think the catchphrase is, it's a plan, not a prison, right? So like, yeah, it, it's about disclosure. It's about what you thought was a good idea at the time. Maybe you change your mind, right? And and you just have to say that, right? You can't pretend that you thought of that, you know, a priori. But as long as you disclose that, 
I think it's totally fine and, in fact, better to do the analysis you think is the right analysis. Well, I, I 100% agree with you. I just don't think that's optimizing for robustness in the sense of proving to other people that your work is valid. Because if you if you showed both analyses and you said, oh, look, with the outliers, we get the, the we get a result that doesn't match what we what we had our hypothesis we claimed but we don't think we should include the outliers we remove them and look now it's a pretty result i think you're gonna get a lot of skepticism well think about the possible reasons though so like let's say you get outliers on a reaction time test and you didn't anticipate it for some reason but the the outliers are people who took like 10 minutes to like respond to a go no go task or something like i know this is a little bit silly but there are some outliers that you might not anticipate that when you explain them to a reader, it's going to be immediately obvious, like, yes, you should include that data. That data is nonsense, right? Um, like, for instance, like people saying that their age is a thousand or something like that. Like, there's things that are just like, this is obviously not a meaningful piece of data. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that, I, I mean, I guess this is sort of becoming a question of like, how do people interpret pre-registrations and when do people find deviations convincing or when do they buy them? Um, and I don't think that I know the answer to that for sure, but I do think that I think it's like not giving pre-registration as a practice enough credit to say that people don't allow for any sort of deviations or, um, the possibility that you couldn't have anticipated something. Like I think most people who are, who have thought about pre-registration and are practicing it understand that, yeah, there are times when deviating from your pre-registration is is the better move. Yeah. Maybe it makes sense like to think of it as this is almost like a caricature of like a failure mode that you could get into where you're so worried about not being able to be second guessed or appearing to be right. perfect, right? That you sort of lose sight of what the point of all of it mm -hmm. is. Um, and I mean, that seems like a theoretical possibility, but in practice, you know, A, I, my experience has been more like Alexa's in that, you know, if people deviate from their pre-registration, but for a good reason, um, that they don't really seem to get dinged that much for it. And conversely, that the people who are most into the kind of robustness practices are also the people who are like, let's really get it right. Right. So that those tend to co-occur. The person who's going to want to post their data and pre-register and all that stuff is also going to be the person who's like, well, we don't need to run this extra study that could disconfirm what we're saying, but I want to be really confident that what we're saying is right. Mm -hmm. So let's run it. Right. Like those just like kind of empirically seem to go together in researchers. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because I don't know what your experience is, but I often find that when I read papers, I don't think the truth-seeking decision is being made. Now, there's plenty of cases where I do think it's being made. I think there's some really good researchers who are truth-seeking. But but quite often in papers, I think, hmm, they made this decision in this way. It doesn't seem to be optimizing for truth-seeking here. And I'm wondering whether that's your experience or not. I would agree with that. But I think that the, the motivation that competes with truth-seeking most often is the career motivations that you're talking about. So that I did think is a real conflict. Um, like there are many times when, like the example that you all just gave, right? Where if you were truth seeking, you would run another study, but if you were career seeking, you'd be like, well, what if the study fails to replicate my original result? And then like, I feel like I can't publish it at all. And so I can't get another paper. So there's like many, many cases and, and this has been improving, right? Like this was like the whole goal of the open science movement was to align career motivations better with truth seeking motivations. And I think that has happened to some degree. 
but I still think that they're they're still sometimes at odds, right? Yeah, and it's definitely it's possible to get people to follow a list of rules and have them miss the spirit of them. I think that's that's a risk that we ought to be aware of, right? Where really what we want the spirit that we want is I think this is what Spencer's calling inspired science, right? You you really uh-huh. want to get it right, right? Yeah. And even if you if you can never get caught out, you still want to do the thing that maximizes the chance of getting it right. And that, that's supposed to be the reason behind all of it. Um, but it's possible that if you just tell people, well, follow this checklist, that they may do that and not really absorb the um, the reason that we actually want to do all this stuff. Exactly, exactly. And, and I think maybe if we disagree, maybe we just disagree about how often this comes up, whereas I think it comes up quite a bit where people are checklist following because they hear these things are good or certain things are good practices without thinking about the deeper underlying like well what is the most truth-seeking thing to do here given that I'm trying to figure out how this phenomenon works um, you know another example that comes up for me in my own work because I'm often trying to do things in a really like pragmatic like build a tool you know build a get a result that we can use is in sample size calculations right? Where if I'm trying to figure out the sample size, I know that if I add a data point in this study, then I'm removing a data point from another study. And so for me, I have to take into account cost in addition to power, and I have to weigh those two things together. Whereas I think a checklist kind of approach thinks more just, oh, wait, I want to use, I want to use some standard. I want to you know, set my power level at a standard so that, that like everyone can accept that I did a good job. Yeah, I mean that's a whole nother conversation that maybe we don't have time for. But I do think that there's a way to like fetishize power analysis that's a bit silly, um, because we have so much uncertainty about what the expected effect size actually yeah. is, and that has such a huge effect on power. So you could be like, well, you know, given a reasonable range, I might need like X or I might need ten X participants, yeah. right? So yeah, that does seem sometimes like a bit like theater to me. There might be like some situation where I can imagine the robustness sort of like the robustness motivation sort of taking over um, where I guess you become so concerned about getting, let's say like a clearly significant result, like something that's going to be really, really replicable um, that you lose sight of whether it's interesting or important, you know? So like, you design a study that, I mean, that's going to ding you in other ways. Like it's going to ding you in the typical career ways where people are like, oh, your study is boring. But, you know, anybody can run a study where they get a really replicable result. It's just like a question of whether that's interesting. Yeah. Well, does this get into the next point that we want to go to, which is what Spencer calls importance hacking? It probably does. Did you? Totally intentional on my part. You totally did that on purpose. I, this is like, this is A-plus podcast hosting, Alexa. <laughs> Spencer, what is importance hacking and why should we care about it? All right, yeah. So I think, first of all, that was an amazing segue. I appreciate it. Um, <laughs> as a podcast host, I appreciate a good segue. Um, yeah, so he, here's the way I think about it. Imagine that you want to publish in one of the top journals in the field, right? Like as everyone does. How can you actually do this? Like what are the different possible routes and the first route is that you could actually make a genuine, interesting, or important discovery, right? Like you find something that's new, that adds value to the sci- to scientific knowledge. And of course, everyone wants to do that. The problem, though, is that it's really hard to do, right? Everyone would do it if it was easy, but it's not easy. Okay, what are your other options? Well, option two, you could commit fraud. 
Now, very few people are willing to do this. I think it's like only a small percent of the literature, thankfully. It's just too unethical for most people to do. Great. Okay, what's your third option? Your third option is you could do p-hacking, you could use fishy statistics or harking, selective reporting, and so on, in order to get a false positive into the literature. And this is, you know, when we think about the, the replication crisis, this is obviously a big part of what we're focused on is like people getting false positives into the literature. But as I thought about this more and more, and as I actually started conducting replication studies myself, I started realizing there's actually a fourth way you can get a paper published, which is what I've given the term importance hacking, because I'm, I'm not aware of a term for it right now. So what is importance hacking? It's basically where you get a result that's actually not interesting, not important, not valuable, but you somehow make it seem that way to the reviewer. So they're convinced that, that it's interesting enough to get published, right? So it's about the way that you're spinning that research so that the reviewers view it as something that should be published when in fact they probably shouldn't, but it's not a false positive. Like it actually would hold up if you did a replication. Uh, and then when you think about importance hacking, you can start subdividing it. And I like to break it into four different subcategories. So we can think about hacking conclusions, which is where you claim that you show X when actually you show something a bit different, like you show X prime. So um, an example of this would be you show, let's say, something about risk-taking behavior in a video game, but then you claim you're making a result about risk-taking behavior in general. Now, risk-taking, making a result about risk-taking behavior in general might be really interesting, but in fact, all you've proven is that in this really stupid video game that has nothing to do with anything, people take more risk, but there's not actually anything on the line, so why shouldn't they take more risk, right? So, um, so that would be hacking conclusions. The second is hacking novelty. This is where you show something that's actually already known, it's either already known in the literature, or maybe it's just total common sense and everyone already knows it, but then somehow you make it seem new as though it's a you know, different phenomenon than the ones that have come before. Um, the third is hacking usefulness. This is where you get a real result. Uh, it really is there, but you kind of spin it to be something that's useful when in fact it's not. And so the most common example of this would be like, you have a finding, it's a real effect, but it's such a small effect that's not clin clinically significant. So it's statistically significant, but not clinically significant. So it couldn't really be used for anything in real life. And the fourth and final subcategory is hacking beauty, which is you make a result seem really clean and beautiful and pretty, when in fact, it's actually kind of messy and ugly and like hard to interpret, but the beauty of it makes it seem like it should be something that's published. So that, that's kind of my breakdown. My first reaction to the this idea of, of importance hacking is that I hear psychologists talk about this idea sometimes using the the term um, overclaiming um, or sometimes overgeneralizing, um, and so I think that you like these distinctions that you make. Um, I wanted to start with the first one. So you talk about hacking conclusions, um, and I think here part of your definition is that the authors are claiming that they um, found something that they didn't actually find. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. They maybe found something that sounds similar or is like sort of related, but it's not what they actually found. Okay. Um, and you use the example of a video game, finding something in a video game, um, but claiming that it's true in real life. But you are making a distinction here, right, between um, hacking conclusions and fraud. So it's not like the researcher is saying, I did this study in real life. There's, they are saying that they did it in a video game or yes. like participants played a video game. But they're just like drawing a conclusion that's happening um, in real or 
they're drawing a conclusion where they think that this result applies in real life. Is that right? Exactly, exactly. So this is not fraud. So fraud is a completely different way to get published, which is obviously completely unethical. This is a much, much more common way of getting published, which is not fraud, which is right. importance hacking. Um, I don't know how common importance hacking is relative to p-hacking, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's like sort of on the same order of magnitude. Yeah, so I, I think that one person who would agree that this is on the same order of magnitude is Talia Arconi, who wrote this paper on the generalizability crisis. And I think that one of the main points that he wanted to make is that we're obsessed with the idea of the replicability crisis. Um, and uh, if all we are worried about is whether or not effects replicate, um, we're going to miss like a really important other problem with the psychology literature, which is that people are constantly overgeneralizing. Um, and so I see that like sort of theme in in your ideas about importance hacking, because sort of like m loosely speaking, one of the things that he talks about is the gap between the like numbers that we're collecting, the empirical data that we have, and the verbal conclusions that we're drawing. And so like one way that those things can be misaligned is that you can sort of like um, sort of dress up the words um, to sound more interesting than what that what the numbers actually tell us. And I think you can do this in the the hacking novelty way or in the hacking usefulness way, right? So you can make your finding seem more novel um, with the words that you use to describe it, um, especially if you sort of like increase the distance between those words and like what you actually did, right? Um, and the same goes for hacking usefulness, right? So, um, if you talk about a finding and you really stay specific to like the exact measures that you use and what you did, um, then like if you, if you were to take that and try to, you know, impress editors or something like that, you might, um, emphasize that this actually like applies in other contexts, right? Or, I mean, you use the example of, you know, sort of like exaggerating the effect size. Um, but I think most most of these examples are situations where the verbal claims that people are making don't match up with um, exactly what was done, um, which also I think is rooted in issues with validity often, right? So if we do a study where we say we're measuring aggression, you know, saying that you're measuring aggression, that's going to amp up the um, the like interestingness of the findings. It's going to amp up the usefulness. Um, but if you do that by, let's say like, measuring milliliters of hot sauce that you put in someone's drink. Um, it's not that that's, that's useless. It's just like when you frame it that way, um, the limitations of uh, how you could generalize that finding become much more apparent, right? Right. And if, if throughout the whole paper, you always refer to it as aggression, and then only in one particular paragraph, you mention that it's hot sauce. It's like very easy for a reader to just think of, oh, they show that aggression is linked to such and such and sort of just not focus on the fact that really they're just talking about milliliters of hot sauce. Right. And actually, another way that we've talked about this on the podcast is we've talked about the way that people, when we had um, Yuli Aurora on, we talked about how people um, will not explicitly say that they did a causal study, but all of their language will suggest that they could draw causal conclusions from their study. And causal conclusions are often things that um, make a finding seem more useful um, sometimes make a finding seem like more novel or more interesting. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that this, this is something that is clearly like an issue in the literature is uh, the way that we sort of dress up findings and 
the implications that we say they have compared to um, what those implications might actually be. Yeah, and the causality one is really interesting because people, nobody wants to lie, right? So they they don't they want to dance around it in a way where they're not actually lying. They're not saying that they prove causality, but you know the way they use the wording, it's kind of ambiguous, and you kind of your brain is led naturally to think that there's a causal effect. Yeah, and I also think, I mean, you say that people don't want to lie, and I yeah, I generally think that that's true, but I also think that a lot of these sort of um, the slippage between what is actually measured, the numbers that we're actually collecting and the words that we use happens pretty unintentionally. Um, so I think that it's the the limitations of the research that we do, I think, are much more daunting than than many of us acknowledge, myself included. So even just sort of like coming up with a manipulation or a measure that does approximately what we want it to do is extremely challenging, right? And you have issues with like stimulus selection and whether those are representative of the category that you want to represent. Um, and there are just like challenges every step of the way. And so I think that sometimes people think, yeah, it's okay for me to use the word aggression um, to talk about milliliters of hot sauce. Um, and that that sort of like misleading use of language is not an intentional lie. It's just uh, an underappreciation of how difficult it is to, to measure things. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's been said that if you're trying to study an electron, the electron, every electron's the same, right? And electrons don't have personalities. And uh, you can isolate an electron and just study it, in, you know, by itself. It's like trying to study the human mind is incredibly hard. It's, you know, if it was easy, I think, we, you know, we'd have made tons more progress. But it's incredibly, incredibly hard. Um, and that's also partly why we need to use such good methods and why we need to be so truth-seeking, because it's so easy to get the wrong answer. So there's one way in which uh, this really seems different from p-hacking, which is that p-hacking really was deceptive. So you would leave things out. You might mm -hmm. drop participants and not say so. You might drop a condition and not say so. You might select some subset of the measures that you gave. As a reader, you just don't know. You might suspect, but they never say. Whereas I think all the stuff that you're mentioning, it is there in the paper, right? You can look at the method section and say, oh, okay, we operationalized aggression as they gave this other person X amount of hot sauce. So uh, a reader or a reviewer could object and say, "Hey, no, you know this is this is not a good way to measure aggression." And in fact, you know, you often get that in the review process that reviewers object that you know you're not measuring things the right way or that you're overclaiming, overgeneralizing. The effect is too small to make that sort of a claim, and so on. So that distinction does seem important, right? Like it, the information is in there. Maybe it's just not as salient as it should be. I think that's right most of the time. I think occasionally you actually need to look at the materials. And I think, I don't know that reviewers commonly look at the materials. Um, and looking at the materials might actually be like tedious, but you might say, hey, wait a minute. Now that I see how you actually implemented this, like, of course you're going to find A and B are correlated, but just based on like obviously the way you presented them or something like this. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's kind of an unappreciated problem mm -hmm. is like if somebody's willing to be a bit shady, they could like kind of build in a confound. And unless you actually go and scrutinize the materials carefully, you're not going to catch it. And yeah, 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 that, that is an issue. Yeah, there, I mean, I don't know, like there we might be getting into like what I would consider to be like 
borderline fraud, like deliberate dishonesty. Well, sometimes it's done by accident, even though, like, you know, that's the thing. It's tough to get in the person's mind. Like maybe they accidentally inserted a compound. They've been running this protocol or they've been finding these effects for years. And, you know, nobody's ever looked at their materials closely enough to call them out on it. It could be. It could be. You can't know anyway that it was deliberate. That's right. Yeah. But, you know, if you're talking about like effect sizes, let's say, small effect size, you're making this big claim. That's something that's, you know, obviously going to be visible if you look at the actual effect sizes in the paper, right? Yeah, it will be in the paper. And I think there, something that sometimes happens is that people use overly fancy statistics. I'm a mathematician, so I'm just incredibly unimpressed by the fanciest math. And when people give me really fancy math, I'll say, okay, cool, but like, show me the simple thing. Like, show me the most obvious way to analyze this because, like, I'm not sure I understand this fancy math, you know? Like, and um, so that, that can, I think, be a, a sort of interesting way where even just the effect size, like, well, if it's all wrapped up in this complex analysis, do you really know how to interpret that number that comes out of it? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, as a reviewer, I'm often like, uh, can we just see a correlation matrix? <laughs> like, yeah, right. Exactly. Put in the supplemental, right? Like, it doesn't have to go in the paper, but but it should be there somewhere. Okay. So I feel like we've done this. Well, actually, you don't know what well, I want to follow up on one more thing. I don't really understand how beauty hacking is really different from regular P hacking because they're both about making the results look cleaner, right? How do you distinguish those? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. So, I think about beauty hacking as telling a story about your results that makes it seem like a, you know, you ever ask someone about like how they got to be where they are in life and they tell you some nice, clean, linear story of like, well, I did this and that led me to this and led me to this. But like the reality is our lives are incredibly messy and complicated and like things are random. And so it's sort of like that. It's like, well, it's not, you're, you're not lying. You're just kind of like telling the story of your data in a way that leads the reader to be like, to some nice clean conclusion. But actually, maybe if you look closely at like Appendix B, there's like something that sort of contradicts what they're saying. And then like, huh, the way they did the statistical analysis, like would it have come out the same way if they analyzed it this other way? Um, and so it's like, it, and it's not, and again, this is not p-hacking. So their result would hold up. Like if you did their, if you redid their experiment and you did the same statistical analysis, you'd get the same result. But if you really try to pull apart the result, you'd be like, this is kind of a messy, complicated thing. I don't quite know what to make of all of this. Yeah, that seems really tough to differentiate from just confirmation bias, right? You you go in, you have some expectation, you have a favored conclusion, you run some set of analyses, maybe they even that you planned, right? Like you pre-registered them. You're like, great, looks good, supports my conclusion. And then it's tough and unnatural and counterintuitive to think about like, well, what are the tests that would that I could run that would disconfirm it? Right. Is that kind of what you're talking about? Yeah. Like um, when I think about this, I think about this Feynman quote that I that I really love. The first principle is that you must not fool yourself and you are the easiest person to fool. After you've not fooled yourself, it's easy not to fool other scientists. Um, and I think about that a lot, like how, yeah, if you come in with like a really strong perception of like how you think this is all going to work out. You could tell a story to yourself that's very convincing to yourself about it. And then you could tell that story to the reviewer and the reviewer might be convinced by it. But, you know, it doesn't mean that's like the only way to interpret all the, the numbers in your paper. And that's the only story to tell with it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is in part what the review process is supposed to do, right? Like you come in with a story that you think is convincing and then reviewers are supposed to be kind of adversarial and say, couldn't it be X, Y, and Z other things? Like you're not testing this potential alternative, right? That's that is how it's supposed to work. Yeah, and I think it's quite clear that reviewers do block a lot of really low-quality work, right? I think it's just that when you get into stuff that's sort of harder to assess, 
maybe it becomes more of a random crapshoot. And I think a lot of people have experienced that where they've like failed to publish something in three places and then another place publish it. It's not even like a worse journal. It's just like, you know, just sort of luck of the draw kind of factors. And there's been some interesting studies on this where they resubmit the same papers to the, to the same journals and they often get rejected by the journal that already published them. So yeah, yeah, no question. There's, yeah. there, there's a big gap between how it works in the ideal case versus how it actually works in practice, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's an extremely flawed and fallible system, but the idea behind it is supposed to be this, you know, you, as long as you're kind of honestly reporting what you did, you might come in having an idea of like, you know, what's going on. You might've run a bunch of tests that you think support it. And then the reviewers are supposed to be able to look at your experiments and your data and say, Hey, you know, here's 10 things you didn't consider. I have a way that I read papers that tries to avoid the storytelling aspect of them. Where what I do is, you know, obviously I'll read the abstract just to make sure I'm interested in the topic, but if I'm interested in the topic, I'll go immediately to the methods section, read the methods, then I'll go re- immediately to the statistics, like the tables, read the statistical results using those methods. And then only once I've done that, I'll, like, I'll think about, well, what, what do, how would I interpret this? Given what they did and what the numbers they got, how would I interpret it? And then I read their d- discussion. And what I find really interesting about that is then you already have an impression of what you've learned before you read the storytelling part. And then you can see, well, does their storytelling match what I thought it was going to be? And I think that um, I suspect, I don't have proof of this certainly, but I suspect that if reviewers approached it this way, they'd be less likely to be misled by the storytelling because they'd already go in having an opinion on like what they should have learned from the study. I have this sort of like, um, yeah, vague idea of a study that involves having people not not do exactly what you described, but basically see um, exactly what was done in a study. Like maybe like look at the materials, look at the results tables, that kind of thing, um, without any sort of like narrative explanation. You know, like no like labels of variables or anything, and then like have people guess what the study was about. And I think it would be really. I think people would just like come up with such a variety of of narratives to describe what any given study was doing. I think it would be really funny. I think that's really cool, yeah. You know, I mean, you could do the experiment where you randomly assign people to either read the paper in the normal order mm-hmm. or in this new order that you've proposed yeah. and see whether it, new order makes them less convinced about uh-huh. the conclusions. Well, that would like be that. cool. That yeah. would be cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, all right. If, if any listener wants that idea, you know, free for the taking. We're not going <laughs> to... <laughs> Scoop us. <laughs> We're giving it away. Yes, please scoop us. Um, okay, so I'm kind of out of whiskey. Can, can we do a quick break here and then yeah. and then come back?
Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. So we are on Twitter at Four Beers Pod. I still have not gotten around to setting up the Mastodon account. Uh, maybe <laughs> next week. <laughs> it is kind of bumping over there, though. A lot of people have moved over, actually. Um, a lot of people are on both places, but some people have just seemed to have moved over entirely. Sanjay is over there. You know, I've been enjoying his content. So, uh, yeah, check it out. I refer to that phrase um, to a friend uh, after our podcast, and I called it mammoth migration. And I've never <laughs> felt more out of touch. <laughs> I joined Mastodon after your podcast, by the way. Oh, no kidding. How are, how are you finding it? I just started, but uh, yeah, cool so far. Okay, so uh, yeah, on Twitter at Four Beers Pod. Uh, if you'd rather email us, our show's email address is uh, fourbeerspod at gmail.com. Uh, you can drop us a line on our website as well, fourbeers.com, where you can also listen to any of our episodes. Uh, finally, if you're enjoying the show, please do just take a second to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, or the podcast platform of your choice, which helps people discover the show. Okay, tiny bit of feedback on uh, the last episode we released about getting into graduate school. Uh, I heard from a couple folks uh, about something that I said, which is, I think I said something along the lines of on-campus interviews have one thing that they may be useful for, which is weeding out people who are quote-unquote really crazy. Now, it turns out when you have a bunch of psychologists in your audience, some of whom are clinical psych people, that's probably not a great term to use. And I heard from some very kind listeners who educated me that uh, I should have been more specific. So I, I think when Alexa and I went back and forth, we clarified it a little bit, but maybe not enough. Uh, so what I mean is there's some people who unfortunately have interpersonal problems that make them really hard to get along with. So they might have like really bad boundaries, bad emotion regulation. Uh, they might be paranoid or hostile. Um, that's obviously like a kind of a small and unusual class of people. I'm not convinced you can weed those people out in an interview either, but that would maybe be the goal. Um, what I was not trying to say was that mental mental illness or mental health struggles are disqualifying for being in academia because uh, – I think that would disqualify a, a lot, lot of us. us. <laughs> exactly right. Um, so uh, thanks to the people who wrote in. Um, I mm. uh, did have permission from Andrew Devendorf to uh, thank him by name. So uh, thanks, Andrew, for letting me know. Um, any other feedback, uh, we are always delighted to hear from our listeners. Uh, positive feedback, uh, critical feedback. We love it all. Okay. All of it. Every last bit. How are we doing on drinks? I'm drinking the same thing. I'm that's I'm happy for you. Um how Spencer is that kombucha making you feel a little messed up? You feel a little buzzed? I'm happy to say that on this what 0.5% ABV I'm not yet drunk, so it's <laughs> just got to keep at it. Um and I've refreshed my whiskey and that is making me really happy with my life right now. Um, Alexa, any other kind of follow-up or housekeeping stuff we got to do before we move on? No, I think that's it, you all. Okay. All right. So I'm very excited for this next bit. Uh, we were emailing before the show, um, and Spencer, you mentioned that you have, quote, a big new replication project, end quote, to announce here on our show, which is obviously an incredible honor for us, and we're very excited. Uh, so what is the announcement? Yeah, you're very kind. And I have literally never talked about this publicly, so I'm so excited to tell you about it. 
It's a new project called Transparent Replications. And let me just give you a little background. Um, so obviously, we're all concerned about the replication crisis. Um, I'm also concerned that I find people trusting the field less and less. Um, an author friend of mine was who wrote a book that had a lot of psychological elements, she was telling me that she didn't know what to do because she could either cite the psychology literature and then fear that later the studies wouldn't replicate or just not cite papers at all. And then it would seem like her whole book is non-scientific. And she was like, you know, this is a terrible situation to be in. Like, I think personally, I think it's good for the whole field if the field becomes more replicable, uh, if people learn to trust the field more. And if you know that when a paper comes out in top journal, you really can believe it's finding. So that's what I want to get to. And so the Transparent Replications Project is our idea of how to do this. And the basic gist is that when new papers come out in top journals, we're going to be attempting to replicate them right away. And our plan is very ambitious. Our goal is to replicate every new psychology and behavior paper in nature and science that comes out um, with some constraints around technological constraints and monetary mm -hmm. constraints. Um, but we want to get a really high replication rate. So, so in other words, if you're going to go publish in Nature or Science, you know there's a really substantial chance that you're going to get replicated. And then, insofar as we have additional resources, we're going to also do random sampling from three other of the top journals. Um, we're going to do JPSP, uh, Psychological Science, and PNAS, and be replicating them. And the goal is to do it very fast um, when they come out, so that by the time you kind of hear about the paper... You also know whether it replicates. And uh, I just want to mention, I'm doing this with my wonderful colleague, who's the director of the project, whose name is Amanda Metzkus. Yeah, this is really, I mean, it sounds really cool. Um, yeah, the first place that my head goes to is like, I wonder, um, like, I wonder if this like changes, if if people who are submitting to Nature and, and um, these other journals know that this is happening, I wonder if this changes at all, you know, what they submit or how they like how they submit it, how they report things, things like that. Um, because yeah, obviously this like creates an added uh, incentive for robustness, I guess. Right. Um, and yeah, I mean, it also reminds me of the uh, social sciences. Um, I'm forgetting the acronym. There, there was a, there was a replication project um, a couple of years ago that looked at papers in, uh, nature and science and whether they replicated um, within the behavioral sciences. And this, it seems like this would provide also sort of like an updated estimate of the replicability of what's getting published. Um, which exactly. would be nice because um, I think that, I think we do have some more recent estimates um, of the replicability of sort of like bigger chunks of, of the field that have suggested that, replicability is improving. Um, but yeah, I mean, it would be, yeah, it would be nice to, to have something to show for like all of the changes that have happened in the field and, you know, have a better sense of, of how much the, the literature could be, can be trusted. Well, so obviously the people who are publishing in Nature Science PNAS are, are Four Beers Pod listeners. So they will now know they are on notice. They are going yep. to be replicated. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm I'm a big fan of this idea. I'm curious, you know, what are the technical and financial constraints? So what mm -hmm. are the kinds of studies that you don't think you'd be able to replicate? What are the ones you foresee, you know, being able to replicate? 
Yeah, good question. I just want to address one thing quickly, though, before we go into that, which is that I agree it'd be great to get an update on the replicability of the field. But I just want to point out that that's a secondary benefit to me. The real benefit to me, from my point of view, is to shift incentives, to make it so that um, people know, oh, they're studies are going to get replicated mm-hmm. with, a, with a high rate, and th- hopefully that will push people to do better research. And it will give us the opportunity to really celebrate people who are doing robust research, right? If, if you if your paper replicates, like everyone's going to know it, and that's going to be really exciting, and we're going to push your paper out there and try to get lots of people to read it. So, um, so I just want to point that out. And so those the, the, all, the other pa- all the other projects doing replication in the field that I'm aware of have been backward-looking, which are really valuable, and they teach us a lot, but they don't shift incentives going forward. So that's sort of the big difference I see here. Um, but to, to answer your question, which is an excellent one, what are the constraints? Well, basically, we have to think about our budget. So we have a grant to do this. And so within that budget, we have to think about what's the best way to use it. And so we're going to be starting with just online research. If the project succeeds and we're able to grow in the future, we would love to eventually like do lab work too. But for, for now, we'll be doing online. Um, we'll be doing cost estimates. And so we're not going to do ones that like require recruiting 20,000 people, that kind of thing. But we'll certainly be doing ones that require recruiting a few hundred people. That's very that like is easily within our budget. Um, and there's certain kinds of technical, like really technically complicated studies we may not do that might involve like building specialized software from scratch or things like that. Um, so yeah, we're still figuring out the exact details, but like we're going to try to do as many as we can within our budget. Are you guys going to try and formalize a study selection rule so that you can't be accused of cherry picking things that look? I guess you could be accused in either direction mm-hmm. of cherry picking things that are going to be more or, applicable or that are going to be less. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Our plan is to do well, we're going to try to do within our constraints, which we're by the time we launch the project, we hope to have the the like constraints very well defined. Obviously, they might change over time as we learn stuff, but we want to have them very well defined. And then we want to for nature and science, we just want to do every single paper meeting the constraints. So there's not even a any additional selection criteria for the, for the other three journals? We're going to do. We want to do uniform sampling so that every paper has an equal probability of being selected. Will you use the same sample size as the original paper? Yeah, this is a really good question, and we're still figuring out the details of this. But the, my current thinking on this is that if the original study was really underpowered, it seems like it would be a really bad idea to just use the same power that they used. And if the original study was like way overpowered. You know, let's say they use 20 times more sample, greater sample size than they needed. It seems like it would be a waste of resources to, to match their sample size. So my current thinking is that for each study design, we have to think about what we think an appropriate power is for that study design. But I'd be interested if you have a different opinion on that. I, I don't have a different opinion, I don't think. I mean, my first reaction when you say, like, oh, we shouldn't do an underpowered test of uh, an, un, uh, an underpowered replication of an underpowered study um, it's sort of like, oh, maybe that's what you get for running an underpowered study. Um, but no, I mean, I think that I think that it makes sense mm-hmm. to like evaluate each study um, yeah, with with an eye towards what you think is a reasonable effect size to expect. Sounds like a sounds like very challenging. I wouldn't want that job. Well, one thing I'll just say that I think is really important here, we want to do really faithful representations of the original work. So for every single study we replicate, we will send the replication materials to the original team saying, we're going to do a replication of your paper. Here's exactly what we're going to do. Please take a look at it. If there's any way that it doesn't reflect your original research, please tell us in advance um, because we want to make sure it really matches. Now, of course, if they don't respond to us, we're going to go forward and run it anyway, but we want to give them a real fair shake to tell us if there's any way it's not reflective of their work. Do you uh, intend to 
do all of the feasible studies within a paper? So let's let's say there's yeah. five online studies. Would you just do all of them? Would you choose Maybe. one of them? That's a great question. We decided to just choose one, and we have some criteria around this. There's, we're still developing them, but the basic thought is sometimes one of those studies might be much more central to like the main hypothesis than the others. So that's going to be a factor. Um, additionally, um, sometimes they won't all be feasible, but like maybe they'll have three studies in the paper, but like one of them is just not feasible under a constraint, so we won't do that one. So we're giving ourselves some wiggle room to pick. Um, we also sometimes encounter situations where like, let's say there's three studies and one of them is just like, the result is just incredibly obvious. It was sort of just like, they were double checking something. Like we're probably not gonna choose that because it's sort of like, well, of course that replicates. Everyone knows that replicates, right? It would be interesting to know. So despite the fact that we already know that all of our listeners are going to be the people who are submitting these papers, um, if that weren't the case, it would be interesting to know who knew and who didn't. Um, you probably won't have the sample size of studies to look at this. Um, but yeah, it would be interesting to know if people submit more replicable work when they know that they're going to get replicated. Yeah, my prediction is they would. But yeah, what do you think? Um, maybe you would just submit stuff that's harder to replicate. Yeah, you just like throw in an EEG. <laughs> exactly right. Then, yeah. then we then we just need to, if our project uh, succeeds well enough, we just need to make it bigger so we can replicate more and keep up. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, um, the Data Colada blog, um, which is uh, Joe Simmons, uh, Life Nelson, and Yuri Simonson. I love that blog so much, by the way. They're great, right? And, and they did something like this. I wonder mm -hmm. if this, uh, you know, is just like an example of different people thinking of the same thing at the same time because it's in the air, if they inspired you. But they did this for marketing. They did a series of replications of papers that have come out in the top marketing journal, I, I think in the last year. And I think they did like 10, 12, something like that. Uh, and the idea was, I think, very close to what you're suggesting is like, we want to know how reliable is the new stuff that's coming out. And as it turns out, marketing does a lot of just online kind of Qualtrics research. And so they were able to get the materials. Often they got the original QSF from the authors. So they were able to really like do exactly the study that they did. Um, I think their rule was two and a half times the original sample size. So it was not cheap to do this. Mm -mm. Um, and the results were not great. Uh, I, I think very few of these things replicated. And I think it's causing a lot of agitation um, within marketing. And I think didn't make them super popular with a lot of marketing people because it's like, hey, you're making us look bad. Yeah, and, and just to clarify, I, I love their I love their blog, and I think they're you know I've, I've been following their applications closely. I view that as a somewhat different goal because to me, knowing that this is going to be happening on an ongoing and hopefully indefinite basis is very different from a one time series of applications. Now, maybe they'll keep doing theirs, and that's great. I, you know, I think that'd be excellent if they kept doing them. But but um, this is not about let's do look at twenty papers and see if they replicate. This is about let's try to permanently make things better. Do you, um, so Yoel's comment reminded me or made me think of uh, this question, which is, do you think that you have a um, unique position as somebody who isn't really susceptible to the, like the typical academic incentive structures or the like academic network? Like, are you in a better position to be like replicating these studies? So sometimes people really don't like replicating, um, especially like people who are publishing in nature and science, right? These are usually like, people who have like big reputations in the field and are well-known. 
Um, sometimes people don't like replicating that work because it sucks when you fail to replicate things and people are mad. Um, do you think that you're in a unique position in that regard? Yeah, a hundred percent because we're not in academia. So, you know, I, like I want everyone to like me. I don't want people to be pissed at me. You know, we certainly, we, sure. you know, we certainly, you know, don't want to agitate anyone and we're going to do our best to, um, be totally fair to all the researchers, our best to really promote those that whose work replicates. But at the end of the day, um, it's totally different. If you're a person in a field and you're replicating the big dogs in your field, like, yeah, that could have blowback for you. And we just don't have that effect at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, the worst people can do is criticize us. And, you know, okay, you know, that's fair that you're allowed to criticize us. But Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I kind of feel like at these really uh, well-funded and high-prestige journals, why aren't they doing this? So, like, your paper goes through the review process. They like it. One step then could be, hey, send us the materials. We are going to redo one of your studies, and we'll have staff to do that and to look at the results. I mean, if they're invested in the believability of the things that they publish, it seems like that kind of ought to be a no-brainer for them. This would be a huge win if we could stop doing this project, if the journals just took it over. That would be, <laughs> I'd be like, success, I can <laughs> retire from this project. So I hope that happens. Um, even if they did a, just a random sampling, even if they were like, okay, doing them all is too much, so let's just do like 30% of them or whatever. Like, I think that would just have an enormous effect. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, in addition to the people who submit to those high-prestige journals, I'm sure the editorial staffs of those journals are... Uh, ardent listeners of our show. So, you know, you may find yourself scooped. <laughs> Science announces this. Like this is going to be an influential episode. Exactly. All right. Well, um, I think that's a great announcement. And uh, thank you very much for making that on our show. Yeah. yeah, no, thank you. And I'll just say, so my hope is that we're actually going to launch the website by the time this episode is released. So I'll give you the link. It's it's called Transparent Replications by Clearer Thinking. That's, that's our... Uh, project. Uh, it's going to be on clearthing.org. And uh, we actually already have done our first three replications. We're working on our fourth. And so when the site launches, we'll have some new replications to show you. Wow. Exciting. Okay. Yes. And we will drop that link in the show notes as well uh, for folks who are listening, I guess, next week. Alexa, anything else we want to ask Spencer before you let him go? Um, I think that I think that we've pretty much covered it. Yeah, it's been great to have you, Spencer. Yeah, this has been so much fun. It's just, uh, I, I love chatting with you both, and thank you for all your wonderful comments. Yeah, a- anything else you want to put out there before we let you go? Oh, thank you. Yeah, well, if you enjoyed this conversation, I would love it if you check out my podcast. It's called Clear Thinking with Spencer Greenberg. You can find it on any podcasting app. Thanks so much. <laughs>